But I would say the landscape is changing uh, in a positive way. Um, there's more organizations that are recognizing the link between air pollution and, and climate change and how to, how to fund solutions that address both. This is Data Points, a podcast from Berkeley Earth. Welcome back, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Data Points. Air pollution is perhaps the defining global health challenge of our generation, responsible for upwards of 10 million deaths worldwide each year. As one of the world's leading advocates for the impacts of air pollution and for the need to expand the availability and access of air quality data and infrastructure, Krista Hazencoat previously founded the OpenAQ Air Quality Data Platform and now serves as the Director of Air Quality Programs at the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago, also known as EPIC. Today, on the UN's International Day of Clean Air, we're thrilled and honored to welcome her back to the Data Points podcast to discuss both the challenges and opportunities facing action on air quality and how EPIC's Air Quality Life Index is helping to shift the conversation around the global health impacts of air pollution. Let's get into the episode. So welcome, Krista. Welcome back, actually, I should say. It's so great to have you back um, on the Data Points podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for being here with us today. I want to just go ahead and pass to you and give you a chance to uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. Thanks so much, Kristen. It's a pleasure to be back on the podcast. Um, I'm the Director of Air Quality Programs and the Air Quality Life Index at the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. Uh, I'd say our work focuses on making the intangible costs society pays, like the the burden of air pollution, tangible, uh, so that can be factored into our decision-making, whether that's for policymaking or or building better solutions. Amazing. And I do want to jump right into that um, air quality life index, which we'll refer to as the AQLI from here on out, um, this making these, these externalities and these intangibles more realistic and more concrete. Um, tell us a little bit about this incredible tool, the research behind it, um, and how this is making so much impact by being able to quantify some of these impacts. Yeah, great. So the Air Quality Life Index does a very simple thing. It measures the impact that air pollution has on the average length of a human life, depending on where you live. So for example, in our most recent analysis, we estimate that air pollution, specifically a pollutant called PM 2.5, takes off about five years of life expectancy from the average Indian citizen. And that's relative to if the air were as clean as the World Health Organization guidelines recommend that they they be. And I should also mention uh, on on our website, uh, uh, our tool is available and you can calculate that life expectancy relative to to other parameters, say a given national uh, standard for air quality or or one own customized levels. Um, With with the AQLI though, um, we do this sort of calculation all across the world and we rely on research by uh, University of Chicago environmental economist, uh, Michael Greenstone and colleagues um, uh, and study they did that looked at the impact of particulate matter pollution on Chinese citizens um, through uh, specifically through a, a what's called a quasi-experimental study or sort of a, in this case, fortuitous set of circumstances that let, um, let us look at the impact of uh, particulate matter on life expectancy. So um, just to describe this a little bit, because it's, it's, kind of, it's a very interesting study. Um, essentially, the study made use of the fact that in, in China for many years, there was a unique national policy that divided the country in half. 
from north and south along the Hawaii River. And then so folks living to the north of that river had access to free or very highly subsidized coal for heating their homes in the winter. Meanwhile, folks living just south, whether they're just south of the river or anywhere south, um, they didn't have access to that cheap or free coal. So the air pollution levels were really different. So as soon as you crossed over the river and went north, they were much worse because people were burning more coal. Um, but the, the populations on either side of the river were pretty much identical otherwise. And at, at this point um, in, in China, there was also very little immigration or movement within the country. So it was this very sort of um, fortuitous in the sense of the study, uh, an opportunity to look at that relationship between uh, PM and, and life expectancy. So the output of the, the study, the result, was that for every 10 micrograms per cubic meter of PM 2.5 or so, people were losing about a year of, of la average life expectancy, depending on their exposure. So we applied that relationship that fell out of that study to the global data set of particulate matter um, that, that we had access to. And we partnered with um, a, a group at the University of Washington at St. Louis, Randall Martin's group, to access that, that uh, underlying PM 2.5 data. So this lets us take a fairly granular subnational stock of the, the global burden of PM 2.5 uh, on health. And um, as I mentioned on the AQLI website, we have a tool where anyone can explore it. Um, and again, compare it to WHO guidelines or national standards or ones, you know, set uh, levels. Um, we also release an annual report that updates the results with the most recent particulate matter data for a given year too. You mentioned the, the WHO, the World Health Organization and their standards. And in June of this year, the AQLI rolled out a big update in light of the fact that the World Health Organization did update their own guidelines uh, late last year, um, accounting for more data and more research that shows what the impact of this PM 2.5, this particulate matter really is. What were some of those changes and how, how were those some of those changes in those WHO guidelines reflected in the AQLI update? Yeah, I'll give a little little context for listeners who who might be uh, not be as familiar with the the World Health Organization guideline changes because they were they were massive. So um, the WHO established some guidelines for air pollutants for the first time, uh, I believe, back in two thousand six or so. Um, and I do say guidelines as opposed to standards because these aren't binding uh, as opposed to like say national standards, uh, but they do set a very strong uh, international policy precedent. Um, for for nations to to follow along, uh, and it, really importantly uh, to this question is that these these guidelines uh, fall out of um, an extensive review of uh, the most recent epi uh, and public health data um, to to understand that relationship between pollution of various sorts and and uh, health. So in 2021, as you mentioned, the World Health Organization updated their guidelines. So 15 or so years after that initial work and um, uh, they did a review of the, the most recent research. And one of the biggest changes that they brought was uh, for the annual average guidelines for PM 2.5 concentrations. They cut them by half. So from 10 micrograms per cubic meter to, to five micrograms per cubic meter. And I think the, the, the upshot of all this is that we've realized over time through more research that more people in more places are breathing in air that's harming our health. And for AQLI, what we've realized is um, if you look at um, uh, in, in our most recent analysis, if we 
uh, apply um, the previous guidelines uh, for WHO, that 10 microgram per cubic meter on the, uh, the global uh, population, we find that 80.2% of the global population were living in areas that exceeded that WHO guideline and from based on 2020 air pollution levels. So under the revised level, that number went from 80 or so percent to 97.3%. So practically yeah. everyone uh, globally is now living in areas where um, air pollution exceeds the, the recommended threshold. So uh, overall, the revised WHO guidelines um, emphasize that air pollution, even at low levels, have uh, even greater uh, impact on, on human health than, than we realized. And also though, the, it means that the, the gains for improving air quality are even greater opportunities than we, than we realized before. Yeah, I do wanna talk about some of those health impacts, but I think I wanna just back up for a second because some of these numbers I think can be a little abstract for people who don't necessarily work with these numbers every day, but let's talk about what 10, micrograms per cubic meter like what is that and then and then which was the previous guideline for healthy quote-unquote healthy air and now it's been revised down to five which is half five micrograms per cubic meter how do we relate to those numbers um, that, when we hear numbers like that that's a great question because it is it is quite uh the, the numbers and the, the units are quite intangible in a lot of ways um, and we can translate these into to life expectancy too. But you know, for example, in Bangladesh, as that say the entire country, I believe its average um, PM two point five levels around seventy micrograms per cubic meter, and this this equates to about seven years of of, of life or so um, of average life expectancy uh, lost. Um, so that's in one of the most highly polluted contexts. Um, here in the U.S., levels across various cities tend to be much lower. Uh, let's say uh, roughly uh, uh, most cities are uh, 10 micrograms per cubic meter or, or less, um, but there's still, there's still a toll. Around uh, two months or so of average life expectancy uh, are lost across the, the entire U.S., so there's some variability. Well, um, it, you know, it, if we discuss wildfires more later, we can dive into some of those extremes, but, you know, upwards close to two years can be lost, or even in the U.S., depending on, depending on um, where you're located uh, and, and how, what the air quality you're experiencing on the annual average basis is. Okay, yeah, we're definitely going to talk about wildfires in a minute, but we're, we're taking years off of, off of life relative, whether, we're, whether it's two months, whether it's seven years in, in more extreme cases. What are some of these health impacts that, that we're seeing that are um, affecting quality of life? And how do some of these impacts of air pollution compare to kind of some other disease burdens that maybe get a little bit more attention, uh, possibly definitely more funding in order to tackle as well? Yeah, so for, for you know, the way that say PM 2.5 specifically affects health, there are a host of, of health impacts. Um, you know, there's the common ones we think of like respiratory issues or, or, or things like um, exacerbating asthma or uh, causing lung cancer. And then there's ones that, that are linked to mortality, um, but then there's ones that um, are also linked to mortality we might not think of as much like cardiovascular issues, things like um, heart attacks or strokes or COPD. Um, and then there's a lot of other ones that we're finding more and more of how air pollution is linked to um, uh, various other issues, including cognitive ones, you know, from Alzheimer's to even just reducing your skill in doing everyday tasks like doing simple math or playing a game like, like chess 
Um, and these studies are, are fascinating to see, see this relationship. And so, you know, I think the impacts are not just about life expectancy, but also quality of life and our, our ability to think clearly, um, which is a little bit staggering. And, and to your question around sort of what, how does this compare to other um, causes or risks of death globally, um, that's also staggering. So PM 2.5 uh, pollution, uh, it was responsible for about more than two years of life that are lost to average life expectancy across the, the world. Um, that's a, comparable to smoking. Um, that's about double alcohol use or say unsafe water and sanitation. Um, and it's more than road injuries, HIV AIDS, malaria and war combined. So it, it has a, a huge impact on, on global health. Wow. And when we talk about finding solutions, right? You and I actually on this podcast last year, we spoke about the relationship between air pollution and global warming, which is largely fossil fuel emissions. Fossil fuel emissions not only contribute to climate change, but they also release particulate matter, this PM 2.5, along with other pollutants um, that create air pollution that leads to these measurable impacts on health. But we also discussed that these two issues are, are often generally very siloed and looked at as being separate. And that one of the reasons for that is that air pollution is often thought of as being something that's far away or somewhere else, uh, something that's not necessarily immediate for many people who are not necessarily living in some of the worst areas. But it sounds like these World Health Organization guidelines uh, and this update is showing that this is in fact a problem um, for, as you mentioned, upwards of 90 plus percent of the world. What is the data showing us in terms of what good air is relative to um, maybe our perceptions that we have about it? Yeah, uh, and I, I think this is one of the reasons uh, I, I find linking air pollution to climate change are so compelling is that it gives more tangibility to either issue, no matter where you're, you're located and really yes. gets to the root cause of either one, which is you know burning fossil fuels. Um, so uh, in our analysis, um, and when we use our benchmark for comparison with clean air is that, that WHO uh, guideline, uh, and as I mentioned, like, so average the world's losing more than two years of life expectancy, and even in, in cleaner places, there, there's an impact. In, in the U.S., I'd mentioned we see two months coming off of average life expectancy, and I think, you know, sometimes think of um, that number and think it's just two years, two, two months less of, um, say, being 78 or so um, years old. So it's like just ending you know, life two months earlier, which depending on perhaps your age, you may or may not think that, that it, that's impactful. But the truth is that number means something quite different. It means that people are dying at every age and, and those who are very young or very vulnerable are among the most affected and their deaths affect that overall average. So that two month um, uh, uh, cut of life expectancy really does make a matter, does make a difference uh, no matter where, where you live. Uh, and so like tying air pollution to life expectancy and focusing on the root cause behind a large chunk of air pollution, which again is burning fossil fuels and tying that back into climate impacts, I think can really start building uh, a more holistic and tangible picture about how we think about the impacts of the energy choices we, we make, again, no matter, no matter where you're living. Yeah. So we're in the middle or at the beginning, rather, I guess we're in the middle of wildfire season here in California, uh, which just seems to never end anymore. And 
the past few years have been absolutely brutal as far as wildfires are concerned. And we're all very aware now that, you know, there's smoke and, um, you know, that leads to health impacts. How are wildfires kind of changing the landscape of air pollution in the U.S.? And, and what are some of the impacts that we're seeing because of that? You know, we know that air pollution, even from discrete, um, relatively are having an impact on our annual average exposure uh, and health. So from our recent analysis, we found um, that in 2020, which was, as I'm sure you remember and know, um, it was a horrendous wildfire season in California. Uh, we found that California has had 29 out of the 30 most polluted counties that year across the, the country. Wow. Um, in one particular county, Riposa County, which normally has really um, pristine air quality uh, for most of the year, but was hit with a with a, um, a few wildfires that year, uh, it really impacted their their annual exposure. So residents there, um, we estimate their lives could be cut short by 1.7 years on average if uh, those levels were sustained that they experienced in 2020. So a couple wildfires a year can really impact. Um, you know, that, that health impact, that's, that's, for comparison, that's 10 times more than the impact felt around the rest of the country on average, um, in terms of air pollution's impact on life expectancy. Um, you know, and last week I saw uh, an excellent wildfire piece um, in, in the New York Times and um, by David Wallace Wells, mm -hmm. who's been doing a series of, of, of um, pieces lately. And yes. uh, there was a quote from Marshall Burke from Stanford, and he had mentioned that um, already 30% of the air quality gains from the Clean Air Act have been undone by wildfire smoke in recent years. Yeah. Um, and, and another study was mentioned that uh, if you live within 30 miles or so of even a single wildfire um, uh, over a long period of time, you're significantly more likely to develop lung or, or brain tumors. So there, there is this connection to the wildfires we're experiencing, especially in the American West, um, and how it's undoing a lot of the progress we're making uh, on on uh, air pollution through the Clean Air Act. And that took, you know, 40, um, 50 years to, to make those gains. So we, we have to be thoughtful about how we can mitigate that in the face of the underlying cause or exacerbation of them in future years, which may be climate change. Mm, wow. And that David Wallace Wells piece was amazing. Um, we read it here as well. And I think the headline, which was very attention grabbing was air pollution kills 10 million people each year. Why do we accept that as normal? Um, I think that's definitely uh, kind of the flashing headline uh, that this cause might need a little bit of. But let's talk a little bit about uh, solutions. How does kind of solving some of these health-related issues and addressing the disease burden of air pollution, I mean, we're talking 90% of the world breathing unhealthy air, many, many lives, many, many years of quality of life taken off because of the inhalation of this particulate matter. This sounds like a major public health issue, but it doesn't seem like it gets quite the attention of some of the other comparable conditions such as smoking, um, alcohol use, you mentioned um, road accidents, things like that, which we see getting a lot of, a lot of attention and a lot of funding. Um, what does the funding landscape kind of look like for addressing air quality and addressing some of these health concerns as well? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. So there, there, um, our investment in tackling uh, air pollution does lag far behind the scale of the problem, especially when you look at it in comparison to other other issues. So um, you know, the Clean Air Fund estimates that that globally philanthropies are investing about 
40 million or so dollars per year annually uh, in no, total. 49 yeah, million million yeah. um which is which is you know honestly a drop in the bucket in in, in the the foundation landscape across the, the world and so you compare that to you know something like hiv aids which has a, a, a obviously a huge health burden too um but frankly, a, a fraction of the, the health burden that, that air PM 2.5 pollution alone um, has, we're investing 654 million. So that was 40 million to 654 million for something that's, you know, um, less than a quarter of, of the, the impact. And so, um, you know, that's, that's concerning. That's also a, an opportunity for, for philanthropies that are looking to have an impact in a place um, where an, an issue that has been, um, is huge, but also very tractable. We know, like we mm. know how to solve air pollution mm -hmm. and what to do. So I think that's very hopeful. But I would say the landscape is changing uh, in a positive way. Um, there's more organizations that are recognizing the link between air pollution and and climate change, and how to how to fund solutions that address both. Uh, Clean Air Fund recently released a, a, a paper around uh, linked up or joined up uh, action on both air pollution and and climate change. Um, also, there's a new funders in the space. Open Philanthropy recently has now a, um, um, a program dedicated towards air pollution as well. And so I think we are seeing a tide shifting. There's, uh, I think, higher level coverage even in the media. Um, so I, I'm super hopeful that that 40 million can, can go up by uh, at least an order of magnitude yeah. to, to get closer to the scale of the problem. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit as well about the data, of course. Um, underlying some of these measurements. I mean, how does the, you were, well, we should mention that you were formerly the, the co-founder uh, of OpenAQ, which is one of the largest air quality uh, platforms, air quality data platforms, we should say, in the world. How does the data collection behind this look? What are some of the opportunities that we have with respect to the data collection um, and the landscape of kind of air pollution data and, and data science? Yeah, I think looking globally, I think data collection, opening up data, and even more, even bigger picture, I'd say air quality management mm -hmm. um, is, is a probably the lowest hanging fruit in terms of addressing air pollution. Um, and from, from, from both uh, effectiveness and also even just funding capacity, um, it, it's, it's uh, low hanging fruit to get existing data that, um, uh, has been generated by governments or other actors out there into the world that, but just there isn't capacity to make that data open. It's low hanging fruit to put up a monitor, uh, a monitor, <laughs> a single yeah. monitor in, in a country that doesn't have any uh, long-term air quality monitoring. Um, and it's, I'd say equally low hanging fruit to invest in, you know, software, data software management for, for countries that don't have access to, um, uh, cheap or, or free um, software that basically lets them connect their, their uh, monitors to helps do some of the quality control behind it. There's just a capacity lacking issue. And it's relatively cheap and a huge long-term smart investment to uh, put, put money towards building human capacity and skill in, in various countries where air pollution um, hasn't, doesn't have a uh, a huge investment from from governments in terms of like air quality agencies um, and, and sort of this long-term uh, capacity because any solution that one wants to fund or build is at the end of the day going to rely on data to understand 
what that progress looks like, whether that's to iterate, change course, or to keep going. Um, and so that, that's a real, like, no matter what the solution is, every, there's a common denominator where you need this basic management infrastructure, long-term air quality management infrastructure in place. So to me, that's like one of the lowest hanging fruits that, that um, any, any funding organization could, could go for. And speaking of funding, um, the Inflation Reduction Act recently passed did include some provisions for air pollution and air quality. Uh, how do those look and what kind of impact do you anticipate those having? Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to see how, how that shapes out. I think there's, I, I still don't have 100% visibility for how that will actually look, but mm -hmm. um, I know there's about 300 million or so uh, that's been allotted for state agencies to um, increase or improve their air quality. Um, I, I think that that'll be incredibly powerful for hopefully filling in gaps between places um, where where um, there's air quality problems, but perhaps not the most um, granular air quality monitoring to notice the problem yeah. or to bring attention to it or um, actual action. Um, it does look like there will be several billion that are going to be invested in in community projects as well. Um, from things that involve environmental justice issues and, and perhaps low cost uh, uh, sensing uh, that, that um, can also uh, help bring about change to you know, um, zero emissions transportation programs as well. So I think that's all extremely exciting and I hope there's a, a ripple effect, not just in the US but elsewhere in, in um, this focus on, on air quality being linked again very directly uh, in, in the Inflation Reduction Act or the climate bill um, yeah. to, to uh, inspire and hopefully fund other works elsewhere. So that is a positive note and let's kind of keep that positive note going as we kind of wrap up here. There are success stories out there, policy success stories, funding success stories um, that demonstrate that we can be effective at reducing air pollution and we can reduce these disease burdens maybe tell us a little bit about what some of those policies are and how those are looking and, and the potential um, that, that we have to address and solve some of these issues. Yeah, I, I, there's positive policy examples all across the world in all kinds of different governments and cultures and um, you know, economic restrictions or, or um, different environments. And so I think that makes it extremely hopeful. You know, there's two, two um, examples, I, I would say, on either end of the spectrum uh, are China and the U.S. You know, the, the U.S., uh, I'm sure many listeners are maybe already familiar with, as well as China to some extent, um, but very different uh, economies. Uh, they, they had their successes over different time periods and different eras with different technology access um, and, and very different approaches. Uh, but both uh, China, in the case of like seven or eight years, the U.S. over a longer period of time, closer to 30 years, have seen you know nearly uh, a 50 percent, almost a 50 percent reduction in in um, certain pollution levels. In China, we estimate from um, Epic that that's shaved about or added about two years of life expectancy if these levels are, are sustained. These improvements mm, are sustained, wow. so it's gigantic. Um, there's been major advances in the U.S. too. Uh, as close to close to uh, two years as well, um, more like one and a half. But the the policies in either place varied. You know, in China, there was a lot of restrictions on coal-fired plants where they could be placed if they're allowed to be open. Um, there was uh, you know different bans on burning different types of fuels. Um, in, in both places, though, there was a national level 
uh, support and also financial support behind behind that. Um, you know, another example, actually drawing from uh, an interesting one I've learned since uh, joining Epic is uh, some work uh, at a subnational level in India uh, between um, the government of Gujarat, a state in India, uh, as well as uh, a few several other actors, including Epic at the University of Chicago. Um, but on a, a particulate matter market, so it's the first particulate matter market among um, various uh, power plants uh, to reduce emissions and uh, cap emissions and, and reduce them. And they've done so by about 20% since 2019 when uh, the, the um, market was first established. So there's several examples in different ways uh, and in different contexts from you know China to India to the US, which are three very big and different places. Um, and I think one of the things that, that makes me most optimistic, and I, I, I heard this framing recently, and it's really stuck with me. Is you know, uh, I don't know about you, but I, I hear, especially over uh, the summer, a lot of people discussing how this will be the um, hottest summer of our life, uh, or the sorry, the the coolest summer of our life. Yeah. Um, and and that's let's that's, hope it's the hottest. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, likely it'll it'll be the coolest, even though it's so hot. So and and that's depressing, frankly, like it, true but depressing. Um, because then no matter what progress you do, it, it may not feel great. Maybe it'll feel okay, but it won't feel great. It's not exactly inspiring. But with pollution, which again has you know, the same underlying cause um, mm -hmm. as climate change and burning fossil fuels, uh, I think there is a lot more hope. This could be the most polluted summer of our lives and it could only get better from here if we choose to do that. And, and to me at the end of the day, given that we know that we have the tools and we know what to do to do um, to address air pollution. Um, and there's, while there's a funding gap, um, you know, just a few different actors could come in and really change that scene dramatically. I have a lot of hope for, for where we can go with air pollution and how we could really um, you know, see gains of, of, of life expectancy across the map uh, with, with action. More information on the topics discussed in this episode can be found linked in the show notes below. Please be sure to like and subscribe to Data Points wherever you get your podcasts. Berkeley Earth is a 501c3 nonprofit organization producing leading climate and environmental data and analysis. You can contribute to independent climate science by visiting donate.berkeleyearth.org today.